Hey, well, you're here. Uh, I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. We are uh, week number two of our series, Fearing the Lord. Our copier didn't work this morning, so that's why I look all cool and fancy with my iPad. So uh, I do not like preaching with digital technology. I don't know why. I just have a love-hate relationship, mostly a hate relationship with all technology. But uh, we're going to have to use it here this morning. So we started a message series last week, The Emotion of Fear, and the title of the message was The Blessing of Fearing the Lord. We talked about last week why it's a good thing, why it's a blessing to fear the Lord. We looked at that word fear used in the scriptures and denoting it's a very wide, nuanced word. It has the idea of dread and terror, but also reverence and awe. So when you look at the word of the fear of the Lord, fearing God, it has this idea of two aspects of his holiness, which I love we just sang about. So you should be afraid if you're an unbeliever and outside of Christ. As a believer, we should fear his disciplined hand on us. But also we see this idea of his character and his attributes and his power. So there's a reverential awe. So we see this word fear of the Lord. It, it's, it's not just a fear only. It's also a reverence, but it's not just a reverence only that you know you're dealing with a holy God. It's a very nuanced word, but it means this reverential awe of God. That's the definition we tried to give to it. So this week, we're going to look at this idea of last week, the blessing of fearing the Lord, just in general, why this is a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a blessing. We don't hear people say, well, that's a God-fearing person anymore. I don't know if people actually like it. Remember we talked about last week, even the, the fact that everybody's tried to sanitize God in a way that when we say the fear of the Lord, people would just say, oh, that's just in, you're just in awe of God. That's what fear means. Trying to think that we need to sanitize a holy God. But no, both aspects are true. So we want to cover the ground and go, this is a blessed thing. But also this week, we're going to look at this idea. The blessing of fearing the Lord results in us not fearing man. The blessing of fearing the Lord results in us not fearing man. If you're looking for a title, there it is. Not fearing man. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll look at more about fearing God by looking at his attributes, helping us to see his holiness, see his goodness, see his unlimited power, see his sovereignty. So we'll, we'll look at the aspect, the positive aspect, but... There's kind of a negative aspect, which is this, the fear of man. And the fear of man in the scripture, the only way to actually counteract the fear of man is to have a greater fear of God. And the greater our fear of man is actually reveals how much we're trusting in man for life, for joy, for happiness, for satisfaction, for fearing what man thinks, what others think about us. The blessing of fearing the Lord is that we will fear man less and less and less. Now, we're going to flip around a couple different places in your Bible, but let me just start with kind of a, just presuppositionally out there. Take your Bible and look at Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25. Let me just kind of lay out the idea of this message, why we could even say the fear of man. And be honestly, most of us, when we say the fear of man this morning, there might be the idea of like, I don't even connect with that, Nick. The fear of man, I don't fear anybody. Really? Have you ever not told the truth because you were afraid what someone would think if you were to tell them the truth? Or, I mean, has someone ever called you and you, you told them, you know, they said, hey, what are you up to? And you thought you had to tell them, you had to tell them something just so you could seem kind of respectable in their eyes that you weren't just doing nothing you ever been like you have to tell someone that you ever been really 30 minutes away from being somewhere and you call and say hey we're running behind well how far how far are you away oh just like a couple minutes right why would we do such things it's called the fear of man in that moment we didn't want those people to go 30 minutes so we thought if we could just tell a little lie I actually discovered this. If we will take an honest assessment, the lying that we do in life is a result of the fear of man. Although I'm confident that this, and I'm speaking sarcastically if you can tell, I'm confident that no children or no youth in our church actually lie to their parents, right? That doesn't happen. But when that does happen, if suppose suppose it were to happen, when that happens, it's really, it's a fear of mom and dad 
But actually what it is, it's, a, it's a more of a fear of mom and dad than you actually fear God. When you lie to your parents, you're actually revealing you fear man more than you fear God. In fact, the youth that tend to be the best truth tellers are those who fear God the most. So I'll be honest with you. Fear of man is a huge one. It is all over our life. Even the deal of this, have you ever stayed awake at night for fear of what someone else thought about you, right? Even if it was a misunderstanding, the thought of, oh, they, there was a misunderstanding and, and I just hope, oh, I just can't sleep tonight. I just want to make sure that, I just want to make sure that, that they don't think bad of me. It's a fear of man. It's all over our lives. Proverbs 29, 25, if you, you probably have it by now, it says, the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So there's two things that you see contrasted when you look at the totality of Scripture. A fear of man and you see a fear of God. Or a trust in man versus a trust in God. The greater we trust God, the greater we fear God, the less we will fear what man can do to us. Now you don't have to turn over there because you probably know it. We've quoted enough, but... If you refer back to Matthew 10, 28, it says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the scriptures clearly tell us that we don't fear man, we fear God. And if we'll take an honest evaluation of our life, many times we fear man. We fear man. If there's something unethical that happens at work, for fear that we might get fired or lose our job, we won't say something for fear of man, right? So there's, there's moral things in our life that we won't stop for fear of man. There's dating relationships that, that, that actually are continuing further, continuing to go when you know it's not the Lord's will, and you won't end it because you're afraid of what the other person may think, the fear of man. There's interference, in your marriage, from outside sources, be it in-laws. Sometimes in-laws become outlaws. That never happened in our church, right? Sometimes in-laws become outlaws. Sometimes there are people who are interfering. There's, there's from work to friends to family things, or it could be ideas or it could be even hobbies that can interfere in our marriages. And for fear, we won't intercede because a lot of times the fear of man, the fear of man is so big. In our lives. So the idea that some people have is, well, just stop it. Well, let me ask you, has that worked very well? Just stop it. You know, I've tried that. Just stop it. No, something else has to happen. A heart change through repentance and faith. We start to come to a bigger trust in God. And in the next coming weeks, we're going to look at some of the attributes of God that actually help us to have a bigger trust in God, a bigger fear of God. But I just want to expose the idea that even doing this series, it's a good thing. Because it's a blessing to fear the Lord, but it's a blessing to fear the Lord because it will result in us not fearing man. And when we're not fearing man, we are most satisfied, most happy. God is most glorified. Life is as it should be. Now do this. Take, go to your Bible. We're going to flip around a couple places. Just let me build the tension. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you've ever read your scripture and as you've been reading it, you start to go, man, I'm a little confused at times because sometimes I'm told to fear and sometimes I'm told not to fear. You know, it's a flip-flop to me. I, I don't understand it. Why is that? Let me give you some categories. First Peter chapter 3, I want to read a section that I've had this question asked where in one section, one passage, it says, fear, fear, then don't fear, right? Now, how do we reconcile that? That's what we're going to look at a little bit. Look in First Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And by the way, if your wife and your husband is disobedient to the Lord, he's an unbeliever, possibly, a, or, or he's a believer. There's a lot of debate, but, but we do find this when we read this text where it's, it's directed towards a woman whose husband does not obey the word. We can, we can get into the debate of whether this husband, in, this husband in question is a believer or an unbeliever, but what we find is he's not obedient to the word in some way. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, even... Yeah, so that, this is First Peter 3, 1, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without the conduct of the, by the conduct of their wives. So it says, wives, let there be a godly life that's shown 
as you're trying to minister the word to your husband. It says in verse 3, 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, that word respectful, the Greek word is the the phobo word that we saw for fear. It's By the way, this is a good translation, respectful. Some other translations will say your fear and pure conduct. But we find here that it says, wives, actually fear the Lord. Fear the Lord in your conduct. The way you interact, especially with a, a husband that is rebellious against the Lord. Fear the Lord, grow in him. So we have an encouragement of a fear. Now keep looking at verse 3. Do not that the adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear. It's not telling you that you can't wear jewelry or put on makeup. What he's trying to point out to you is much as a woman may accentuate the external, make sure that you really put emphasis on the internal. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty, with a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. A spirit that is controlled and gentle. It's not, a, it's not a spirit that never says God's truth, but it's a kind and gentle spirit. He says in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by, the, by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 6, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, just by the way, we'll look at some passages, Abraham wasn't always up to good, calling him Lord, and you are his children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Isn't that interesting? He says right here, do not fear, but in verse 3, fear. Now, while I'm in the same passage, you'd be encouraged to do two things, but they're the opposite. So we must find there must be different types of fear. In verse 3, we really see a godly fear, fear of the Lord. In verse 6, this would be a sinful fear, really a fear of man. In context, the fear of your husband But you could even take it wider to the fear of anybody, but in context, the fear of your husband. For instance, like a wife who submits to her husband's leadership in the home, unless he's asking her to sin, she actually submits to it, not because of she fears him, but really because she fears the Lord. She trusts the Lord. In fact, when you deal with the idea of submission in the Bible, it all actually predicates on, do I actually trust the Lord? A wife submits to her husband as unto the Lord. By the way, just to back it up also, husbands, that doesn't mean that a wife is to submit to you in all things. Uh, She can never submit to sin. So there's a limit. So we see this. It confuses people. Verse 2, there's this idea of, yes, fear. Verse 6, don't fear. Well, that's because there's different types of fear. There's a sinful fear, mostly manifest in the fear of man, and there's a godly fear, mostly manifest in the fear of God. Now, in the next coming weeks, we'll look at the fear of God a little bit more. And today we're going to look at the fear of man. But before I do that, let me mention a third type of fear that you don't see in this text, but you see it in others. Look in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Here's a great example in Romans 13. So we find in the scriptures really three types of fear. There's the there's a fear of man, a sinful fear. And we're going to look a lot more at that today. There's a fear of God, which we're going to look in the coming weeks, really looking at the attributes of God. And then there's a natural fear. Natural fear. You know, there, there, there are some ways that we fear, and it's sinful fear towards man. There's some way we fear, and it's actually the fear of God. But there's also a natural fear that's, that's good, that's right, that the Lord puts in. Romans chapter 13 and verse 3 through 4 gives us an example, especially when it comes to government. It says in... Romans 13, verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to the bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Paul's questioning and saying, shouldn't you fear authority? He says, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. If you break the law, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul is talking about government here. And later he talks about who you're to pay taxes to. But he makes the point of do you, you should fear authority. You should fear government authority. If you're doing wrong, you, you should be afraid when you do wrong. They don't bear the sword in vain. It's talking about kind of a natural fear that 
a fear of I've done wrong and I'll suffer the consequences. This this is a natural fear. For instance, there used to be this slogan in the 80s, and I believe it even leaked into the 90s. Y'all remember the slogan, no fear? Y'all remember that? It was a very popular slogan. You'd have to be old and gray-headed like me, kind of. No fear. It used to be said so much. Uh, I, for, I forget what exactly commercial it was promoting, but it was this idea of no fear. I can remember in high school, we, that was kind of our mantra on the football team, no fear, right? Well, I would actually say there are there is types of fear that we have. There's a natural fear. Now, the, the truth is, though, uh, you grow in that natural fear. I can remember uh, as an 18-year-old boy that when I got in my car and I looked at the odometer, right, if it said 150, my first thought in my mind is, could it really go 150, right? That's the thought you had. Like, well, it says it. I mean, is, and, you know, and I can remember as a young man, the thought is, can I get up to that? Because your brain's not fully developed yet at that age. That's why insurance rates are a little bit higher for young men that age. I mean, you, you know it. Like, if you've got a man, if you've got a boy and a girl, you are going to pay two different insurance rates. Because even the insurance industry knows that a young man typically doesn't have a natural fear. That, you know, part of his brain hasn't developed. But now I can tell you this as a 43-year-old man. You could put me in a car that says 300 on the odometer. And there is nothing in my soul that says, I want to try that, right? Because I, I know in my head... If I get going too fast, I'll lose the control. I've been driving for enough. I mean, these cars are very delicate. And they're just, there's a natural fear. So it's a natural fear. There, there would be this natural fear of, even if I did go that fast and I got caught, what would it look like to go like, hey, congratulations, Pastor Nick. He just got the record in Memphis for driving the fastest ever down Highway 385. Although on Friday nights, it seems like some people are shooting for that if you're driving down 385. It's a natural fear. It's a natural fear. So a natural fear is good. It's inbuilt. It's in. It's inbuilt by God. It's not a bad thing. But the problem is when our sinful nature takes this what could sometimes be a good natural fear and twists this helpful emotion that God puts, distorts it, and it turns into something that more is a man-centered fear, a fear of man. Now I want to submit to you: the greater our fear of the Lord, the less we'll fear man. The greater the fear of man, the less we fear the Lord. What's really great about this idea of the fear of man is the greater your fear of man may be, it is a diagnostic for the soul to let us know, do I really fear God? Do you even know this? Some of the anxiety that people feel each day. Get this. Some of the anxiety people feel each day. If you were to trace it and track it down, it's really the fear of man. They're fearful what someone else may say at work to them that day. What, what may happen at school, what may happen in this situation, what happens if they get this call. There's this fear of man that brings up the anxiousness of the soul in some people. So the greater our fear of the Lord is, the less we'll fear man. The greater our fear of man, it really lets us know that we don't fear the Lord. Let me point to you a couple of different places. And, and my first idea is this, the sinful fear, the fear of man can tempt us to not obey God. Overall, it can tempt us to not obey God. Look in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And yes, the Old Testament's still good. It's still relevant. We should still read it. In fact, what's really cool is, um, I've ran into so many people that have said, man, I've been reading the Old Testament, and I see Christ all over the Old Testament, and I'm so excited about him more than I've ever been before. That's one of the exciting things. You know, some people who've never read the Bible, they think the Old Testament is just a hodgepodge of stories that are just pieced together just to give you some kind of good bedtime stories for your kids. But no, actually, well, the Old Testament is actually painting a picture of Christ. It's painting a picture of God's sovereign work through the children of Israel, culminating in the ultimate time that Jesus would come. But nonetheless, let's go to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to do a little bit of reading and talk about the fear of God as we go through chapter 3 and chapter 4. Are you all okay with reading? Y'all okay with that? Good. Because that's what we're going to do. Now, Moses, we're in chapter 3. We're going to go into chapter 4, and we'll stop at verse, uh, verse 9. I'm, I'm sorry. Actually, we'll stop over probably about verse 13, actually. And I want you to look at some things about Moses here. Moses, is fear of the Lord is not as palpable and strong, and the result is he's automatically fearing man. He's fearing man. And, and God is gracious to him in this text to give him evidences and proofs. 
Let's take a look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I just want you to have this idea that when we, when we don't fear God, we fear man. When we fear man, we don't obey God. Now, Moses was keeping... This is chapter 3, verse 1. I'll make some comments as we go along. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Median. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Kind of a big deal, don't y'all think? He says, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. A very miraculous thing, because he kind of knows that if something burns, if something's on fire, it typically burns down. So he sees a bush, and the bush is not being consumed. He realizes it. Verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. Moses realizes something something supernatural is happening. And And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So we find here he's confronted with a holy God. He's confronted a situation that that rightly he should be in the fear of the Lord. There should be a reverential awe. In fact, so much so that God says, take off your shoes. So much so that God is letting him know this, who, what God is communicating with him. Verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land of Egypt to a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Y'all have got some good words there. Verse 9, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've seen the oppression which the Egyptians have oppressed them. So God is setting it up. He's already showing him a bush that does not burn, and God is communicating an angel of the Lord right there to him, right? Big deal. Take off your shoes. The place where you're... This is holy ground. This is sacred. If there's anything in that moment should have been driving him up was the fear of the Lord. But you can see even in the moment how the fear of man was crowding out the fear of God. He says in verse 10, God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, the next, you kind of see what happens when someone's fearing man more than God. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses starts to doubt. Why would he doubt? There would all be sorts of earthly reasons, but ultimately when you see a bush burning (laughs) that doesn't burn down and God is speaking to you, you you kind of know that this is something wholly other more than Pharaoh. But yet there's still a fear. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people Out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God says, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to do something miraculous only I can do. And God's already starting to give him enough evidence of there's something supernatural about me. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God that has led. You've heard the stories of me. You know who I am. You know of the covenant that's been made. I am that I am. So God has given him all the clear proofs, but yet there's still the fear of man. Just... And by the way, don't let me get too accusatory of Moses here. Because we have all the proofs of what the one true God is like. But we often find ourselves in the midst of a big God we should fear, actually fearing what man can do to us. Verse 13. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell him, tell him Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has appeared to me. 
saying, I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt, and I will promise to bring you up to a land of the Egyptians, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, he says to him, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met us. And now please let us go three days into the wilderness that we may sacrifice. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Just a pause in verse 19. This is a sovereign God already telecasting to him what would happen. What greater evidence of the fear of God could you have than someone who is so holy and other that already knows what's going to happen ahead of time, right? I mean, what great benefit that is. What great evidence. But as you find this, fearing God and not fearing man, sometimes it takes a little bit. Verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and each woman who lives in her house for silver, for gold jewelry, for clothing. You shall put them on your sons, your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. This is a very tall order. Go into the most powerful nation. Take, take several million of your people. Lead them out. And by the way, Egypt is basically going to empty the treasure house into your lap and just take off. But let me do this. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen all ahead of time. And in fact, I'm going to give you some evidence right before you. I am that God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God that's made the promise to you. I am the God of the burning bush. Verse 4. Then Moses answered. But behold. By the way, just to note. So Moses instantly is not down for this. You you do notice that in chapter 3. He's scared of it, right? But yet God says, hey. Let me build the fear of God in your life. Let me build a big vision of me. The more you fear me, the more you trust me, the less you'll fear Pharaoh. But lest you think that it's an easy thing to get and it's not something that man needs to be nourishing his soul with, look in chapter 4. And Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me. They will not listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, there's a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Good choice. That would be a great example of natural fear. You should run from serpents. But the Lord God said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. I want you to know the, the generosity of God over and over, just reconfirming to him, no, I'm actually the one that's more powerful. Verse 5, And they may that they may believe the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob that has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. But he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So God, once again, is confirming that he has the power, he's to be feared, and the greater God is feared, the less man is feared. Just as a generousness to our souls, if the fear of God is not robust in your life, take courage. It may take a little bit, but don't settle where you're at. Verse 8. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs, Then listen to your voice. You shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. So God's given him these three signs. And Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute and deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So Moses says, okay, I've got another excuse. You're giving, show me all this power that you got. Got it. Trust you in it. But wait a minute. Don't have a really good tongue. Don't speak very well. I'm not eloquent. Can't do this. I'm not up for this job. Then the Lord once again says, now therefore go. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to speak. But he said, oh Lord, please send someone else. Then it says, and then the, what does it say? Then the what of the Lord? The anger of the Lord 
was kindled against Moses. So God says, I'm angry, Moses. I'm angry. God is angry when he is not feared above man. Moses is fearing what man can do to him. Fearing, and God has given him all the evidence and support to say, don't fear him who can destroy the body, basically. Fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. By the way, notice the kindness of God. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. We're in verse 14. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. Then we will teach you both what to do. He shall speak to you for the people. And he shall be your mouth. And you shall be as God to him. So God gives him a co-laborer to help him in this. What kindness. But what you find here is the sinful fear of man is keeping from him from obeying God. And in the end, what you find is the greater the fear of man, it shows that there's less of a fear in God. But the greater the fear in God, the, the less fear of man there actually is. And let me give you an example. So here's kind of one that's a, I guess you would say a negative example. God process of sanctification works him through it. I mean, you kind of know the story, right? You've all seen the Charlton Heston movie. Hopefully you've read past this. You discover that he does go in. It's not an easy course, but God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promise. God shows his might. Now go to Nehemiah chapter 6. I'll show you another place. And I would consider this one a more positive one from the outset. Moses is a little bit more negative, but God works him through it. But now let's look at one that's a little more positive. Whenever we're tempted by the fear of man, it can tempt us not to obey God. For instance, you know what really stops us majority of the time when it comes to speaking the good news of the gospel to people? It's really the fear of man. We're fearful for what they may think about us. You'd be surprised many things in life. We are just fearful of what others would do and say to us. We're fearful of other people's opinions. Now, I'm not saying walk around like someone who's kind of a jerk for Jesus and just says, like, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm not encouraging that. But what we'll say is this. The more we are focused on what God thinks about us, the more we are focused on pleasing him, there's not even a capacity to really be asking ourselves, is man pleased with me? Because that would be too much fear of man. We're, when we're so focused on the Lord, he's who we fear. He's who we want to please. He's who we want to trust. Nehemiah chapter 6. So the story basically is Nehemiah is building the wall. Great book to read. And he's making some great progress. And the enemies of Israel do not like this. So they put together kind of a conspiracy theory to stop him. And here's what I want you to notice as we read through this. That Nehemiah basically says no because in the end, he fears God more than he fears man. So he obeys God. God had called him to go back there to build the wall, to bring protection to Jerusalem, to rebuild their society after exile. They built the temple. It's now time to build the walls. This is what God wanted him to do. Now watch what happens in chapter 6, verse 1. Hey, hopefully you're okay with reading the Bible today, right? If you're kind of thinking, man, I haven't got my Bible reading in this morning. Well, about, you know, three or four chapters a day, you'll read the Bible in a year. You might accomplish it today. So rest easy. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there, there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had set no doors on the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come. By the way, this is not a good meeting. They're setting him up. Just, you know, spoiler alert. Come, let us meet together at Haka Param, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, he said in verse 2. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop till I leave it and come down to you? So Nehemiah says, I can't stop. I can't do it. I've got work to do. I can't stop it. They actually wanted to hurt him. They wanted to get him away from the work. And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Now, by the way, just so you understand, this was a big deal. They were really coming at him. But because he had such a robust fear of the Lord above man, didn't give in to it. Even four times they made this request. Verse 5, they ratcheted up. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. 
Verse 6, and it is written, It is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it. Have you ever heard that thing where somebody says, Everybody's saying this, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And then according to these reports, you wish to become king. Basically, you wish to become king of the Persian Empire. An accusation, a bad accusation. An accusation would scare anybody. An accusation that for most men, they would have said, okay, stop the work. Someone's saying I'm trying to be the king of the Persian Empire. This is bad. This will stop everything. Let me leave. And he said, verse 7, And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. This is the, this is the setup that, that Sambalad is writing to him. That there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. So a fifth letter, fifth time. Verse 8. And then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are, you are inventing them out of your own mind. This is what I love. Samballot had a lot of political power. He was not afraid of Samballot because really he was afraid of the Lord. So it's not this thing where you go, Oh, I'm just going to tell Samballot I, I can see through this. But really the reason he saw through it is because he feared the Lord. This so he's not fearing what man. He's not fearing even the lies of man. He's not feeling, fearing the manipulations of man. Get this. And, and Lord knows I'm the worst at this sometimes. Sometimes when we get manipulated in life, we really get manipulated because we have too much of the fear of man in our lives and not enough fear of God. A greater fear of God we would sometimes actually call into question the manipulating schemes. Do you know even sometimes there are things that maybe even people may tell you and you know it's probably not the truth, but to confront it would actually be just more work and energy and scary. And what's happening in that moment? There's a fear of man and not the fear of God. When there's a fear of God, you're not afraid to call out the manipulations. Verse 9. For they all want to frighten us, he said, thinking their hands will drop from the work and you will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Look at a man who fears the Lord. He acknowledges what's happening. He goes back to God. Verse 10. Now, when I went to the house of Shimei, the son of Belai, the son of uh, Mehitabel, who was confined to his house, he said, let, so basically a false pro- a prophet, a prophet gets hired, Right. But to give false prophet, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So be fearful. Nehemiah, actually, let's do something that only the priests are allowed to do. Let's go into the temple. Let's shut ourselves up. We could be safe right there. Verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. I'm not going to go into the Holy of Holies. And I understood, I'm not going to go someplace that the priests are supposed to go, the high priests. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. And why did he know this? Ultimately, because he had such a robust fear of God. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired, that I should be afraid. So he realized that I should be afraid. But notice his whole reason. For not doing this, not giving you this. He was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So he realized that giving into this will be giving into sin. But I want to point to you that reveals that his greater fear was of God. Not man's rumors, not the rumor mill, right? By the way, you can often see, is there a fear of God or man? It's the rumor mill. It's the rumor mill. Do rumors actually cause you to lose sleep? Does it cause you to get worried and fret? My friends, there needs to be a robust growth in the fear of God. We'll come to that more in the next coming weeks. Verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noda. And the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. <laughs> it's not just that one prophet. There's other prophets that were trying to do this. How can you, can you imagine how hard it would have been to be the leader 
and then having prophets, people who have a big voice, people that trust, that are deceptively being paid off on the side, who are saying, stop this, go meet with them. Can you imagine how hard this was? Can you imagine what pressure this was? But what stopped it all? He had a great big fear of God more than the fear of man. This is why the name of this series is really the blessings of fearing the Lord. It's a blessed life to fear the Lord. And and the thought is that I'm not sure we fear the Lord as much as God calls us to actually fear the Lord. Let me show you something else and then we'll be done. One more passage of scripture. Y'all okay with looking at one more passage of scripture? I've got like three more, but I'm going to save you and we're just going to look at one. That's a really bad way to say it. I'm going to save you from reading scripture. How terrible. Please delete that from the recording. Okay. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12. I'm trying to decide which one to do. Genesis 12, 20, 26. I plan on doing them all. Know this. In your own study time, why don't you read Genesis chapter 20 and read Genesis chapter 26. And you're going to see a repeat incidence of what we're about to read in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This story is kind of repeated another way in, in, in Abraham's life with, with Sarah in Genesis chapter 20. And like father, like son, Isaac repeats this same thing with Rebecca in Genesis 26. So you can Read that and see kind of a repeat of what happens. And which is just kind of a side note. The fear of man, it's it's a terrible pattern of of like learned behavior for all those that you disciple around you. Right? I mean, your disciples see it, your kids see it, your wife sees it, your husband sees it. It's a terrible cancer to the soul. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 12. And I'll, I'll paint a picture for why there should have been no fear... For Abraham here. Chapter 12 verse 1. So we see this. The fear of man will cause us to be disobedient. Just like we saw earlier with Moses. A greater fear of God will bring greater obedience. And now I want to point this out. The fear of man. A sinful fear. Will also tempt us to act selfishly. Selfishly. The character of Christ is selfless. The character of man is selfish. And whether we realize it or not, it's the fear of man that really makes us act very selfish at times. Fearing what others could do to us. Fearing that we won't get something that we want. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. And him that dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes a promise. Multiplication. I'm going to move you to a new land. I'm going to establish a nation from there. This has gospel implications when you look in Galatians chapter 3. Ultimately this is pointing to not only the children of Israel. The children of Israel coming from Abraham. But also to a land and ultimately to a Messiah. So this has huge implications. So look what Abraham does. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old. He departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So God is giving him unmistakable evidence that he is the true Lord God, that he has the power. He's given him the promise. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on toward the Negev. Now verse 10, something happens. He starts to doubt the Lord's plan. He gets concerned. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, 
I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that that my life may be spared for your sake. So Abraham entered Egypt, and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So just I want you to notice a couple things. He goes down into Egypt, which we can question, was that even wise? Right? Egypt, the picture of sin. But regardless of all that, I want you to notice that in the end, he is more fearful of what Egypt might do to him than what God may do to him. God has made promises to him already. God has told him what's going to happen. And it's not like he doesn't believe this God. He's left his homeland. Here's, here's a pagan man who's being converted to the Lord, who's left his homeland, make it, made a great track and trip, has had great promises made to him. And so in the end, he's risking some promises. He's putting his wife in the hands of some pagan pharaoh to be taken into Pharaoh's harem. And why does he do this? Because he fears man. He fears for his life. He is not confident that God's promises outlast what man could do to him. And it's just like what Matthew 10 tells us. Don't fear him who can destroy the body. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. The worst that Pharaoh could do would kill him. But really, God had already made a promise to him that from his seed... From he and Sarah, God was going to give a nation. And that had a messianic promise on the back of it. Notice in verse 19. And why did you say she is my sister? He's being confronted by the Egyptians. So I took her for my wife. Pharaoh's confronting him. Now, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. For Pharaoh, it might have looked really good at first. It might have looked very pleasing, like, hey, I lied, but look what I got. I got all these resources. But in the end, it actually revealed that he didn't quite fear the Lord yet. If you were to read and keep reading the story of Abraham, you'll find that he's going to repeat this episode, this same kind of thing later on, which you find this. It's a, it takes, it, it's a process of sanctification to start to fear the Lord more than you fear man. But what we do find is this. The selfishness, the selfishness that so permeates our lives. Many times it can direct itself directly to the fear of man. That's sometimes why we act selfish, why we won't put others' needs above our own. It's a fear of man. This is why sometimes we'll lie. Like, have you ever, have you ever lied to your work? Have you ever lied while you were late to work? It, like, sometimes we lie because we're just fearful of what man can do to us. Here's the great thing. When you look at, when you look at um, Philippians chapter 2, we find a whole different type of life. Look at Philippians 2 and we'll end there for today. The greater our fear of man, I'm sorry, the greater our fear of God, the less we'll fear what man can do to us. And the, the, and the evidence will be a less fear of man. So the question for us is, do we fear God? Well, let's take a diagnostic of our life. Do we, is there a fear of man? Is there a fear of man through lying? Is there a fear of man through manipulation? Is there a fear of man by this anxiousness that's worried about what others can do to you? Is there this fear of man where you're anxious about what other people's opinions are? Is there this fear of man where even, even this idea that unless you get somebody to treat you a certain way, there can be no lasting joy for your life? The fear of man, the fear of God. Let me show you an evidence in our life, concretely, that there's a robust fear of God. Look in chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's, this is talking about a very selfless life, a life that's not focused on what I can get, but what I can give. And who can have this kind of life? May I submit to you only a person who truly fears the Lord. Only a person who truly trusts the Lord. Only a person who's truly in Christ. 
To be in Christ is, a, is to be someone who trusts and fears the Lord. So much so that it bleeds out into a life that doesn't exalt self, but lives for the glory of God to serve others. The ultimate example in verse 6 is Jesus, who, in verse 6, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being in, born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Savior humbled himself because he was selfless, because he feared God more than anything. Once again, as we close, I cite the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that? He's praying. There's a fear. I don't think he's fearful of death. The wrath of God is about to be poured out of him, right? And he says to God, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Thine be done. What's happening? A fear of God. A trust in God. Is is he negating from a earthly standpoint, from a humanity standpoint of what's about to happen? No, he, he, he realizes what's happened. It's, it's not a pleasant situation. But his trust in God is fear that said its prayers. He now has courage to do what God has called him to do. And may I cite that those of us who have a great fear of God will manifest it with not having a fear of man. Will you pray with me as our worship team comes? And maybe you're here today and you've heard this and maybe God has revealed to you that there's not a true fear of God in your life. As, and I'm going to say this as someone who may not be a follower of Jesus. You may never repent of your sin, never trusted him. The Holy Spirit's not in you. Friend, you have no ability without Christ to truly fear God as the scriptures call you to. What God wants you to do today is to fear him, fear him enough that you would call out to him. I, 16, I called out to God to be my Lord and King. I pray that today you do it. It was a prayer like this. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've broken your commandments. I know that I deserve your judgment. But I today trust in you alone. Thank you for dying for my sins. Come into my life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming into my, coming into my life. Help me to live for you, to obey you, to love you, to fear you. That if you're here with heads bowed, eyes closed, if there's a, it's a prayer like that. It's not the prayer, it's the belief behind that prayer. If that's you, I would encourage you to reach out to somebody today. Here, tell them that you prayed that. Let us help you with the next step. Can I pray for the rest of us? For the rest of us, God's people, Lord, will you help us to be a people that fear you? So that we will not fear man. Expose the fear of man today. Before we take communion. As we sing this song. As we meditate on this. As we look at our week. Reveal where the fear of man has brought anxiousness. And lying. And false peacemaking. And exaltation of our own self and life. A protection of our rights, Lord, expose it so that we can run to you the true treasure. And God's people said,